0: Welcome back to the Hemingway List Podcast for another episode of Shakespeare. Got some sonnets today. Um, What lovely sonnets, as lovely as a summer's day. Um, Swim says the says. shall I compare thee to a summer's day from lit charts. This is sonnet 18 out of the 150 odd sonnets that uh, Shakespeare wrote. Uh, It's essentially a love poem, although the object of its affection is not as straightforward as it may seem. The speaker initially tries to find an appropriate metaphor to describe his beloved, traditionally believed to be a young man, suggesting that he might be compared to a summer's day, the sun, or the darling buds of May. Yet as the speaker searches for a metaphor that will adequately reflect his lover's beauty, he realizes that none will work because all imply inevitable decline and death where the first eight lines of the poem document the failure of poetry's traditional resources to capture the young man's beauty, the final six lines argue that the young man's eternal beauty is best compared to the poem itself. In a strikingly circular motion, it is this very sonnet that both reflects and preserves the young man's beauty. Sonnet 18 can thus be read as honoring not simply to the speaker's beloved, but also to the power of poetry itself, which the speaker argues is a means to eternal life. How cool is that? I mean, there's a reason this poem is the bomb track of Shakespeare poems, isn't there? Like, that is it's just great. Really nice. Poetic, you could say. When in Disgrace with Fortune and Men's Eyes, Sonnet 29, is in part a poem about, about isolation... Envy and despair, in the first eight lines, the speaker lists a series of anxieties and injuries, comparing himself negatively to more prosperous, successful and beautiful people. After the poem's bitter opening eight lines, the speaker reflects on the love he shares with his beloved. That love, he argues, offers compensation for all his insults, slights and misfortunes. He may not have the wealth or political standing he covets, but his love offers him a different form of riches." when to the sessions of sweet silent thought. This is Sonnet 30. It starts with Shakespeare mulling over his past failings and sufferings, including his dead friends, and that he feels that he hasn't done anything useful. But in the final couplet, Shakespeare comments on how thinking about a friend helps him to recover all of the things that he's lost, and it allows him to stop mourning over all that that has happened in the past. Within the sonnet, he grieves of his shortcomings and failures, while also remembering happier memories. The narrator uses legal metaphors throughout the sonnet to describe the sadness that he feels as he reflects on his life. Then in the final couplet, the narrator changes his tone about the failures as if the losses are now merely gains for himself. Then there's the bosom, thy bosom is endeared with all hearts. Sonnet 31 expands upon the sentiment conveyed in the preceding sonnet's concluding couplet, but if... Uh, If the while I think on thee, dear friend, all losses are restored and sorrows end. In the present sonnet, the young man is a microcosm representing all the poet's past lovers and friends. However, the poet's separation from the youth also presents the loss of companionship with these now-dead lovers and friends. Ironically, the young man whom the poet earlier admonishes to bear children to stave off death and mortality now himself becomes an image of death. Thou art the grave where buried love doth live. The sonnet demonstrates that the poet is really writing to himself rather than the young man. His physical separation from the youth prompts him to remember lost loves and then link them to his current relationship with the youth. The poet rejoices that his dead friends are metaphysically implanted in the youth's bosom, but lost friends and lovers, not the young man, are the main subjects of the sonnet. Last one, what is your substance? Whereof are you made? Sonnet number fifty three is often analyzed in terms of Renaissance Napoleonism. No, no, sorry, Neo <laughs> I read that wrong. Renaissance Neoplatonism, uh, the belief that everything is divided into substance and a shadow. In short, nothing we perceive is actually reality because the physical and literal substance of everything is subsumed beneath seemings and shadows which hide a thing's true reality from us. This isn't quite the Elizabethan version of perhaps all we all live in the Matrix, but it is a rough approximation. Stephen Booth, in his Shakespeare's Sonnets uh, Notes, uh, summarizes the relationship between Shakespeare and Shakespeare's Sonnet 53 and Neoplatonism much more effectively when he writes, Shakespeare here takes the platonic idea of beauty and works his own paradoxes upon it, the poem is a hyperbolic compliment in which the beloved an instance of embodied beauty is said to be the form, the idea, the substance from which all other particular beautiful things derive. Alrighty. Thank you so much, Swim, for the moment, said the mama fishy for digging up all those explanations of the poems. Very awesome stuff. Now, we are going to read another five of Shakespeare's poems, sonnets I should say, um, if I can find them, day two of the four days of sonnets, because there's 20 sonnets, we're doing five per day, alright here we go, sonnet number six goes like this, Oh, how much more doth beauty beauteous seem by that sweet ornament which truth doth give. The rose looks fair, but fairer we it deem for that sweet odour which doth in it live. The canker blooms have full as deep a, r- a dye as the perfumed tincture of the roses. Hang on such thorns and play as wantonly when summer's breath their masked buds discloses but for their virtue only is their show. They live, unwooed and unrespected fade. Die to themselves, sweet roses, do not so. Of their sweet death, our sweetest odors made. And so of you, beauteous and lovely youth. When that shall fade, my verse distils your truth. Sonnet 7 Being your slave, what should I do but tend upon the hours and times of your desire? I have no precious time at all to spend, nor services to do till you require. Nor dare I chide the world without end hour, whilst I, my sovereign, watch the clock for you, nor think the bitterness of absence sour when you have bid your servant once adieu. Nor dare I question with my jealous thought, Where you may be, or your affairs suppose, but, like a sad slave, stay and think of naught, save where you are, how happy you make those. So, true a fool is love, that in your will, though you do anything, he thinks no ill. Number eight. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs, which shake against the cold bear ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang in me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest in me though seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. Number 9. Farewell, thou art too dear for my possessing, and like enough. Thou knowest thy estimate. To charter of thy worth gives thee releasing, My bonds in thee are all determinate. For how do I hold thee but by thy granting, And for that riches where is my deserving? The cause of this fair gift in me is wanting, And so my patent back again is swerving. Thyself thou gavest thy own worth, Then not knowing, Or me to whom thou gavest it, else mistaking, So thy great gift upon misprision growing, Comes home again, on better judgment-making. Thus have I had thee, as a dream doth flatter, In sleep a king, but waking no such matter. Number ten. Then hate me, when thou wilt, if ever now, Now, while the world is bent my deeds to cross, Join with the spite of fortune, make me bow, and do not drop in for another, an after loss. Ah, do not, when my heart hath escaped this sorrow, come in the rearward of a conquered woe. Give not a windy night a rainy morrow, to linger out a purposed overthrow. If thou wilt leave me, do not leave me last, when other pretty griefs, petty griefs. have done their spite but in the onset come so shall I taste at first the very worst of fortune's might, and other strains of woe which now seem woe compared with loss of thee will not seem so Beautiful, all right I love these sonnets, I really do. Very cool. Thank you guys for listening. See you tomorrow.